Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming uh, this morning. Uh, it's uh, great to everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, so on behalf, I have a script I'm supposed to read. So in the Go beginning, on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm happy to welcome you. This, this is the seventh annual festival. Um, it's going to be 45 minutes of discussion, and then we'll go to Q and A. Um, the Twitter hashtag is, uh, if you want to tweet out of this, is uh, hashtag TribFest17. Um, and uh, let me introduce my two distinguished guests. Paula Kerger is president and CEO of PBS, which you may have heard of. Um, so, so you've been there since 2006, right? Which is yep. a so, so she's no I'm a record holder. Record holder. Yeah. No one is happy. To and we're before, happy about that. And before that, you were. She was in New York at the, the Educational Broadcasting Corporation, which is Channel 13 and yeah. WLIW 21. Um, and Rainy Aronson is executive producer of Frontline. Uh, she took that job in 2015. Uh, having been there for, what was it, six, 16, 16 years, years ahead yeah. of that, but has also worked at ABC News with Jennings. Mm -hmm. right, once you've worked with Jennings, you can survive right. anything. anything. Oh my Trust God, me. that guy. Um, MSNBC, she was in the Wall Street Journal and the China Post. Hmm. Uh, right? So oh, wow, you went deep in my background. I, I'm a Thank reporter. <laughs> I'm a reporter first, a presenter second, so bear with me. Introduce yourself. Oh, and I'm Jim Rutenberg. I'm the media <laughs> columnist. Uh, I'm having that uh, Admiral Stockdale moment. Um, <laughs> Jim Roo, I'm the media columnist for the New York Times, and I'm a contributor to the New York Times Magazine, and a fan of Evans and of the Texas Tribune, so I'm honored to be here myself. Um, now, uh, the idea of this panel wasn't out of the blue. It happens to be the 50th anniversary, right, of the um, Lyndon Johnson signing the Public Broadcasting Act, um, and I want to read something from what uh, President Johnson, this being Texas, is perfect, uh, something he said upon his signing of the act which created PBS. Um, he hoped that public television, quote, would help make our nation a replica of the old Greek marketplace where public affairs took place in the view of all citizens. I bring up that president to talk about our current president, um, who, has a slightly nice <laughs> who has a slightly different view of the matter. Um, and. Uh, I don't know if everyone saw the headlines, but the budget plans out of the administration were to zero us out. Just completely eliminate, and it would eliminate the corporation for public broadcasting, Correct. right, which finances mm -hmm. PBS. Um, what and is that four hundred and fifty-five million? Yeah. So, um, so the president's budget um, included a um, a zero for, uh, in terms of funding for public broadcasting. And uh, we've been working, of course, over the last months uh, with the House and the Senate, uh, where we've been uh, significantly more successful. And it's, it's interesting in this 50th anniversary of the Public Broadcasting Act, which really did create all of the enabling legislation that led to the creation of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, um, and this vision of this public-private partnership and if I could just take a couple minutes to talk about the significance of that and, and because it also helps to inform uh, where we sit today. Um, the idea, um, you know, because many of the stations uh, around the country were created before PBS. Um, when um, television evolved in this country, it was different than in um, most other countries where the public stations started first. If you look at the UK, for example, they have a small little television service called the BBC, which started um, prior to commercial television, but here it was the commercial marketplace. And it was actually the first woman FCC commissioner, Freda Hayek, who had this idea that this was an emerging technology that was going to be extraordinarily powerful. And how, um, and she lobbied very hard to have some part of the spectrum put aside for educational purposes. Those licenses were given out to anyone who could uh, demonstrate they could put a station on the air. So many of our early stations, like the very first station in public broadcasting came from this great state. It's our station in Houston, first on the air. And, um, and then as the stations began to, you know, focus on their work as educational services, Carnegie Corporation, Ford Foundation, and others really began looking at this idea that maybe we could have something in this country that looked more like the BBC in terms of the richness and the, and the depth of the programming. And so they, um, it resu the result was the signing of the Public Broadcasting Act. 
The federal appropriations, I'm pivoting now to that. I know you're nervous, you think I'm gonna talk for the next 20 minutes. I promise I won't. No, you're a pro, I do not think Just doing some table setting here. So the the federal appropriation actually goes towards our stations. Um, So I think there's a couple misunderstandings about federal funding of public broadcasting. Um, Television and radio, Corporation for Public Broadcasting actually funds both. Um, it represents for television about 15%, 1-5% of our station's economy. And the money largely goes to our stations. It does not come to PBS. It does not go to Big Bird. It does not um, go to our producers, although a small piece of it does. The lion's share of it goes to our stations. And the reason the federal appropriation is so significant is that for stations in smaller communities, in rural markets, Becky McGora, who runs our station in Cookville, Tennessee, is sitting right here. Um, It is a significant percentage of their budget. And these are communities that could not sustain a public television or public radio station without at least some level of support. So the whole idea of the federal investment was really to create universal access. And so if that funding goes away, the reason we fight for it so very hard is that for about 60 to 80 of our television stations, it's an existential question. Alaska, for whom 60% of their, of their budget comes from the federal government, those stations immediately close down, and some of those stations serve parts of the state where there is no other television station. And so the House and the Senate, the reason I go through this whole story, is the House and the Senate know this. Many legislators know their public television and radio stations because in many communities were the last locally owned and operated. And they spend time in those studios when they have issues they want to talk about with the public, when they're running for office because we give them more than a soundbite. Right. And, um, and so in this round, the press has done, I think, a really good job of talking about the fact this is about stations, this is not about um, any national organizations or PBS or NPR, it's really about the ability of local stations to serve communities. So where we sit today is that in last, last week, the omnibus bill that rolled up all of the non-defense spending um, had full funding for us. And so, you full know- Full as in like the same as last year? Famous, same no. as last year. Flat is the new up. Right. So flat is really good news. And Wait, flat is the new what? Flat is the new up. <laughs> okay. And so um, I think that, um, and that is because people, that are invested in their stations around the country made a um, concerted effort to reach out to legislators and say, wait a minute, this is important to us. And um, that's how democracy is supposed to work. And that was, bi- and that was bipartisan, am I That right? was bipartisan, mm-hmm. so it's the House we're talking right. about. So bipartisan, now, this is a good news story right now, but as we are watching, these are unusual times. And so I think that none of us, I don't you know, sleep, uh, fully better, feeling that this is now done, let's move on. I think this is gonna be an ongoing discussion as Congress wrestles with difficult issues. And I think as with other issues, we all need to be very vigilant. And if this is an issue you care about, just make sure that you are reaching out to legislators. So PBS, just uh, to, to, I'll dispatch with this, but I'm just curious about one thing. PBS, in the national kind of political debate, on the Republican side, it's always been a target, yet, once they get home, in terms of individual members, mm. they do have this appreciation. I guess I'm remembering that Rand Paul, for instance, kind of started, starts his career on public television, right? So is that yeah. kind of what's at play here? Yeah, I mean, I think that, look, it's like, um, you know, people hate, people hate Congress, but they love their legislator. And so I think that, I, and I'm not quite sure uh, when, they, uh, when PBS becomes a rallying cry. It, it is the one thing that sort of really confounds me. Uh, it really does, because I, I, I'm not sure why on this sort of periodic basis, you know, the drumbeat starts around public broadcasting. I think there are those in Congress that um, even have a feeling, you know, you know maybe they, they like their local station, but feel there's no role for the government in any kind of media organization. Right. That's their point of view, and they're very clear about it, and very consistent in the way they vote. Uh, but you know, it's just it's just one of these great mysteries for me is why this continues to become an, an issue. It's it's also like the arts. You know, a lot of legislators are very big supporters of of local arts organizations of their local. Um, you know, uh, any councils and so forth, but somehow when it comes to the vote for funding for the arts, by the way, they, they also have done okay right now. 
um, it sort of falls apart, and, and, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. So to pivot into Rainey's role at Frontline, but team off of this, having funding, having uh, nonprofit status allows you to do what that, that commercial television can't do. Well, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day... Um, the answer she's sitting here. Yes, and, and at the end of the day, um, she's one of the best examples because no one is in this business anymore because it costs money. Mm. Um, they will pursue... Investigative journalism is expensive. You don't always have outcomes. You have to really be able to stand behind the work knowing that um, the swords and arrows may come. If, if she's doing her work really well, she's going to make some people uncomfortable some of the time, and that's, that's our business. And I think a lot of people have, have shied away from that kind of work. And so I think that the investment that we make, particularly investigative journalism, so she and I have yeah. never actually shared a stage like I this know, together. I know, it's pretty, it's amazing. It's the first time. Um, it's a first. <laughs> first time ever. <laughs> but but it's, it's true. true. Yeah, I think one of the things we've been really talking a lot about is just having grown up in the news industry, especially in investigative, is, of course, so many of my colleagues, ABC News, many other networks, newspapers, have lost their journalism investigative efforts, you start to see that coming back now, which is really encouraging. But so what I was saying to Jim earlier is that we really have not taken a hit at Frontline. So we are as strong as ever. We've been supported the entire time, so 35 years now. And I've been at Frontline now for 16 or 17 years. And so the point is that we are equipped right now to do investigative journalism. And many investigative journalism units have been taken massive cuts over the last few years, especially at the local and mid-sized newspaper level. So one of the things that we've talked a lot about is we collaborate actively with mid-sized newspapers and local newspapers. And increasingly, we can't because their investigative journalism units have been closed. And so now we're working with the local stations. And that kind of reach is remarkable for the work that we do. And as far as I can say from the investigative side, one of the big reasons I left network news on the commercial side was really because I started to see this big shift away from serious, very serious work on television. And again, I'm really happy to see it coming back in small part, but really we were moving towards a minute by minute rating. And I was starting to see the work that we were doing in the documentary unit diminished, taken out of prime time and not um, given the prominence that it always had. Right, because when you left, say when you left at ABC for instance, right. Was it all kind of shifting toward poppy stuff or like It wasn't as easy as that, but it wasn't as black and white as that. It was more shifting towards narrative crime stories, which are very important too. Mm -hmm. But what I was really interested in was current affairs investigative work, which is what we do at Frontline. So the space to do that kind of serious work was diminishing in long form. I was always committed to long form, but it was out of vogue for about a decade. It's now back in vogue, which is great. We're happy about that. Um, so Frontline's just been a place and a home for so many of us who've been committed to this type of journalism. But do you think it's back in vogue? Who, who other than so Frontline NBC, is doing what you do? So NBC, other places are starting to say that they're going to invest right. again in investigative work. I think it's, it's an awareness that they've been off that job and they can get attention for doing that kind of work. I know our friends at 60 Minutes are doing that type of work. This is to say that I'm not going to speak for the networks, but right. for years and years and years, even my decision to leave the networks was questioned. I was a rising star there. They couldn't believe I was going to PBS. Mm -hmm. And I said, right, well, I'm going where the quality is. I'm mm -hmm. going for quality journalism. And if I can't practice quality journalism, I'll do something else with my life even. But there was a home for many of us who work at Frontline to really um, continue this because PBS has backed it. And, was there and it's expensive, by the way. Right. I mean, backing serious investigative journalism, one of the biggest things that we've never done is cut our editing staff. Our editing staff is actually twice the size that it was three or four years ago because I firmly believe in the act of editing, the vetting we do. We have a new media attorney that's now two or three years into the job who is remarkable. And so every single thing that we do is vetted. And everything is journalism to frontline, whether it's on Facebook. You'd be surprised. Even our Facebook films, the little short ones, go through my hands, our managing editor hands, and our lawyer. So we, that's why we don't produce as much but when we actually do publish, we feel confident about it. Before we get to Facebook, because that's interesting and really important for everybody's future, right? But for you, just in terms of when you get to Frontline, 
But there's things you can do that you couldn't do at network because of, aside from what we were talking about in terms of the trend lines, just the commercial pressures. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we found, and this is just speaking as a younger journalist, that's when I was at the network, so I was a producer, is that a lot of times the story editing would even take into account what the ratings would, would carry through a story. So. Sometimes, right, when you're watching a frontline, we do explain something to you and you have to stop and pay attention, right? We expect you to do that. We have faith in our audience. And so with the networks, they, they really did feel at that time, especially the, the people who were running the hours unit, that they had to move much more quickly through some very complicated material that I felt as a young person was essential to the story. So even as a young person, I was getting really, you know, righteous in these editorial meetings. And those people are now my friends, these bosses of mine back then. <laughs> They're my friends, and we talk a lot about that and, and what happened to television in general. Now, in this environment, I, I just started the media beat, restarted the media beat within the last couple of years. I'd left it for a while. And I would have expected PBS to, you know, along with a lot of other big important parts of our media to get just overwhelmed by the new media and lost in the kind of deluge of content. And so what are you doing to avoid that from happening? And I assume your justification when you ask for money from Congress has to be tied up in how vital you Yeah, know. I mean, if we're, not, if we're not connecting to the public, then we don't deserve to, uh, uh, to receive money. I mean, there's lots of other ways that money could be, that money could be spent. I think it's, it's been really interesting, you know, we're, we're in this, many people call it a golden age or platinum age of television. There's just an overwhelming number, more than 400 new scripted series last year. 400, think about that number. And you have players now that um, one never thought about as being in the television business. You know, Amazon was a place where you bought stuff and Netflix was a place that sent you DVDs in the mail and now they're, they're you know, they're, they are the source of, um, of new um, of new programming and you know last week's Emmy Awards were where Handmaid's Tale which came from Hulu, so I think that um, you know this environment that we're in is is very cluttered. It's very confusing for uh, legacy media organizations who for years really mm -hmm. understood their work as being you know an antenna that reached out to a certain number of people is now has now um, challenged us to really think about our work in many different ways. So here's some interesting facts. So. I've been in this job 12 years. When I took this job, we were the 16th most watched um, uh, media uh, company when you look at uh, uh, cable and broadcast. We're now six, and we've been six for the huh. last four years. And I think part of that What did is, you leapfrog over? Pardon me? What did you kind of over... A ton of cable channels mm -hmm. that were created that were supposedly us, you know. So oh, nobody remembers TLC was a learning channel. <laughs> you know, we can debate about whether the History Channel is really history. You know, Discovery, Discovery right. takes interesting Discovery. paths. But, you know, it, so, so I think that there was this huge move towards reality. We took a very hard look at, at content and really tried to think very carefully what, what's missing, where are the market gaps. And then we always thought about, we, we continually think about, what are the local connections? We're right now in the middle of airing Ken Burns' series on Vietnam War, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's series on the Vietnam War. Many of our stations are doing local docs around it. They're doing community conversations about it. So I think the fact that we have thought about the fact that we're local and national and really tried to take advantage of that. And the third is what Rainey has done, which I'd love for her to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about, which is we've really looked at all these emerging platforms and tried to figure out what does that mean for us how should we be putting our content in various places? So we do have content on Amazon and Netflix and Hulu. Uh, but we also, we, th we thought very carefully about you know, tablets and smartphones. We just launched a broadcast channel for kids. It's the only free national service, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for children of educational children's content, 20% of the people in this country watch television over the air. I'm not talking about cable, I'm not talking about satellite, I'm talking about over the air television, free television. And so that channel not only is broadcast in uh, free, which has a very large audience, and cable and satellite, which adds more people in, it's also streamed, so you can watch it on smartphones, which more and more children, that is how they're consuming content, is on small devices. And so I think the combination of all of that, sustained clear to the brand, Focusing very much on the integrity of the content, building a legacy, not being afraid to try new things, mm -hmm. looking at new platforms. That's how you live. And she is the best example of what that looks like. 
So Frontline, uh, thank you. And PBS has uh, actually been uh, the best at not being protectionist. So when I go to Paula and her colleagues and say, I really want to try something new on YouTube or Facebook and trust us, the broadcast audience and the streaming audience on PBS.org will just be bolstered for that. They say yes, right? And so one of the things we've been able to do is aggressively be digital and, and I mean our whole films, right? So not a piece of them, we're not behind a wall. And this actually goes all the way back to 2000. We were one of the first streaming documentary shows and news organizations in the country. And this is really our founder, David Fanning, was aggressive digitally. He really believed he that- he saw what was coming he right saw it. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I felt like the networks weren't seeing it. And so some of my early conversations with David convinced me, okay, I wasn't going to a dinosaur PBS. I was going to a really breakthrough PBS that was going to allow us to grow and I was obviously really um, inspired by that. The, the biggest thing that I think that we offer is cross-platform publishing natively on platforms where people are. So not the assumption that you are going to find us on television, although that is still a big and our biggest audience is still people sitting in front of their TVs watching it in real time, which I just love the idea of still. It's a romantic and very great idea that millions of people are still watching us on television. But also, it's available in OTT and all devices, your mobile phones, and that's where we see massive growth. We're talking, you know, 40 to 60% growth, and social media is where we publish natively as well. So, because I noticed this, that you, when you really hit on social media, um, I think you had an ISIS film. Yes. Like, what's the top audience you've gotten when you take everything together? It's huge, right? Like 25 million people in social media will watch some of our videos. So this is because we're creating videos and any of you can see me after who are making things, please, you know, ask how we've been doing some of this, but we make native documentary film for Facebook, specific to Facebook. And I think where as a news organization that's visual, we're only visual, we don't have a large text imprint, that we are thinking visually and that's what works really well on Facebook and these new platforms. So we're well positioned to fly because we have that skill set. That's how we're all trained. So it's, it's easier for us to transition onto these platforms. I have a lot of compassion for text newsrooms trying to transition to video because it's not their skill set. Right, so, um, but you, we, we were talking about Snapchat last week. Yes. And are you comfortable, can we talk about this? Sure. Because Snapchat, you told me you, you weren't so comfortable making a move there as opposed to Facebook and Pete. So with Snapchat, we're piloting a few things this fall. We're really excited. We're not going to be exclusive content on Snapchat until we can figure out a way to archive it there. And the reason for that is just, again, anything we publish is journalism. So I want there to be a record of our journalism. So the fact that things disappear on Snapchat is great for my 11-year-old, although I tell him. <laughs> People can capture it, so be careful with Snapchat. I mean, really. But what, as journalists, we really want to be able to have a record, in part because if you make a mistake, right, you want to correct the record. Or if you're said to have made a mistake, you want to be able to go back and say, hey, no, actually, look at what we did. This is what we wrote. This is what we produced. And that's the record of what we do. So we should all have a record of what we do in journalism. That's my perspective. So I hear Snapchat is on this, they understand this. And so, I mean, so many people are on that platform. We want to aggressively be there when it makes sense. Right, because their claim to, when, when, a big, when big news happens, Snapchat is in the room, you know, yes. during a horrible terrorism attack. But that goes away, it's just lost to history. It's lost. And, and yeah. you've begun experimenting on other platforms like VR. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely doing a lot in the new storytelling space and virtual reality. 360 video on Facebook, they have a native player. So we're doing both virtual reality, you can see in goggles. One great example is on climate change in Greenland, where I felt was our most successful because it really was able to bring you home what's happening to our environment and you could see it happening and Paula got to experience that. Um, and then we're also making sure that on Facebook you have access to that because in public media terms, I don't want you to have to be able to buy goggles to experience our new storytelling. I feel so strongly about it. Um, and just one more note on new story forms. The other thing that sounds terribly old-fashioned but is terribly important is that we've always had a tradition of publishing our transcripts of our interviews. In fact, as a producer for Frontline, when I would, I covered um, 
the culture wars. That was my big beat, and I loved this. And oftentimes going into conservative America, I could say, listen, we publish your transcript. So if I get it wrong, you can hold me accountable for that, right? I am not afraid to publish our full transcripts. And so we've now done a big effort around Putin's Revenge, which is our big film for the fall, one of our big films, in which we're publishing not just the transcripts, but the video of 55 of our original interviews. And so people will use that as a research tool, but they can also share it. It's digitally native, so it's all script integrated. So it's a pretty remarkable project, and it's not going to get great numbers. And Paula says, well, that's part of our educational that's mandate. Exactly right. And we take, I mean, look, I think if you um, consider that for our organization, the thing that we care the most about is the integrity of the work that we do. It's really important to have that kind of transparency. In fact, as, a, as, a, as an organization, PDS itself, we're not actually producing. It's, it's rainy. It's our producers at our various stations. It's producers that we bring into public media. Uh, but we have a public editor. Um, we've had, we had uh, formerly an ombudsman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> formerly an ombudsman. And uh, it was Michael Gettler who was formerly of the Washington Post. And when he retired, uh, we just recruited a new, a, a new public editor. And it was interesting because as we, as we talked to other organizations and, and really had an internal debate because there are those that argue that because of um, you know, social media and other opportunities uh, for people to comment and to challenge that there isn't a need for a public editor. I felt very strongly that we needed someone mm -hmm. within our organization when someone saw something that they questioned that they could be the person that would communicate with mm -hmm. Rainey or other producers to make sure that, you know, you know, we always attempt to do the right work, but sometimes, you know, we miss and to have someone in that role. So she actually just posted uh, her first piece this week. Uh, Madalika Sika is our new um, uh, public editor, but I think it's a big part of, of how we see ourselves and our organization. Look, Rainey said something interesting about the Putin documentary, which, first of all, I hope you're ready to get trolled to kingdom come, right? When yeah. that's we're ready. <laughs> we're ready. We've been there. We've done that. And we're here. <laughs> but you said that, and maybe this won't even be true, but you said you don't expect it to get huge numbers, and that's a big deal, Well, the, right? film, the will. film will. The yeah, broadcast will. So my point is uh -huh. the extended work that we do digitally, mm -hmm. like this really important transparency work we, we're doing right now, it won't get millions of people that to it. Happen. But when it comes to accountability journalism and it comes to transparency, it's available there. And so when people come to our website, they have that as a massive resource, right? And we've never done anything of this kind before. And we just decided this year we would do it on our Trump reporting and also on Putin's revenge. So we've been doing this now where we're publishing, you know, the video as well as the, um, the text. And those are integrated together, so you can read, and then you can see the video, and then you can share that. So you can watch our film, you know, obviously millions of people will watch that. It's just about the deeper work we do. All right, then, wrong example, but same point in terms of you don't have to, you don't have to live by the ratings the way that your competitors do. I know you want to be viewed, you want to be seen, but has that altered your approach to news in general? Do you see the way CNN and MSNBC and, well, Fox, obviously, cover things differently than PBS does. But in terms of coverage of Trump, do you think ratings has added to its fundamental difference in the way you cover things? It's not, not for us. I mean, I think <laughs> the biggest differentiator between us and others is that, and some of the ones that you just mentioned, is we understand the difference between news and point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and we do both, but we don't do it in the same place. And we're very clear about it. And I think that it's interesting you know, um, that um, there are those that you know, look at the news hour and they maybe think it's sleepy, they maybe think that we should jazz it up. Um, and we try, we have tried, particularly under Sarah Just, our new executive producer, to make it more contemporary. But we think it's really important to have a news uh, broadcast that is focused on the important issues of the time and that is factually based and that takes the time as Frontline does right. to explain the stories. And so we have not shifted a, a bit um, how we have uh, tried to report this, uh, this administration. And it's been interesting, since the election, our, our audience at the NewsHour has gone up significantly. I think people um, actually from all political stripes have found it to be you know, a, a source of, of fact and information. Right, because that's the, that's the thing here that's been, I mean, I've written about it a lot through my column, 
but that there is a sort of symbiosis in the, re in the commercial media with Trump where it's all feeding itself because the networks have minute-by-minute -minute ratings. They need to really, and they, they're getting jazzed by these numbers coming in. And it does qualitatively affect their, so their we're coverage. Not, so we're not in that game. I'm not selling advertising dollars. So I think right. that it has given us, um, you know, it's given us a unique ability, I think, to be, to be covering this in a very different way. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the lion's share of money that comes into public broadcasting, like Texas Tribune, comes from, you know, philanthropic support. And I think for nonprofit media organizations, you know, obviously, you know, we want an audience. We are mass media. Mm -hmm. But I'm not anguishing over, you know, every single eyeball that's watching a program. I'm not doing what, you know, Rainey's um, former employer did in trying to make sure that as they go into every break, you're at maximum right. eyeballs. And you're manipulating programs so that you have that rise so that you're feeding into, a, into an advertising base. We're just trying to tell really good stories. And we believe that if we do that well, and that there's an integrity to the work we do, that people will support the service. How much of, so And more people come to it. I mean, that's what's been really remarkable for us. So we haven't changed our method, right? We're you know, on the frontline side, we're investigative. We're really well positioned to cover this president like we have all presidents, right? We are doing serious journalism just like we always have, but more people are watching us than ever. So it's not that we were doing something different before than we are now, and I think that's a really big differentiator. In fact, Paula and I had conversations earlier in my time at PBS about, well, so what about the ratings? And one of the biggest conversations I was privy to as a very young person in the system was, you live by the ratings, you die by the ratings. That doesn't mean you don't like ratings when they're great, but you just have to keep your eye on the ball of important journalistic storytelling and people will come. And sure enough, that's been true. And I have to admit, though occasionally I've had to take talk Rainy off of a ledge where she's had expectations. <laughs> in particular. In particular uh, it was so she, helpful. Yeah. Where she something just, didn't, didn't hit the it numbers. It just didn't hit the way yeah. that she thought it was going to hit. Hate when and that happens, it yeah. was, um, and she was just like, you know, beside herself. And I, I, I literally grabbed her by the shoulders and said, are you even listening to yourself? Right. You know, and, um, and it was a helpful boss moment. Let yeah, me tell you. Yeah, I mean, really, that's a dream boss, right? Where she's like, "Don't yeah. worry. This was significant work. This was important work, and it does grow." So one thing that we've really become accustomed to in television terms is, you know, you have the broadcast, but that the actual long lead of a lot of our long form films, so sometimes our two or three hour film, grows over a matter of a year now. I mean, and that's really where right. we see yeah. the deeper, deeper impact of our work and the extended work. And, and the other part of it I think that's really important to comment on, particularly for Frontline, is, you know, Rainey's just talked about, you know, the transparency and the transcripts and the video and all that. It's, it ends up being an extraordinary res, uh, resource for researchers, you know, here we're in the midst of uh, a right. campus, you know, her content is heavily used by academics, by students, by opinion leaders. You know, when I first came to PBS, I was, I was always amazed at the number of times we would get phone calls from the Hill wanting to get, mm. you know, DVDs mm -hmm. then of the material that she was producing and so forth. So, you know, you always have to think about you know, to what end are you doing your work, right? And so, you know, part of it is, is, I mean, the core of who we are is an informed citizenry. So what does that mean? It means that we're producing content for a general audience, but we're also very focused on making sure that we have material available for those that are making decisions about the future of our country. And so if, if we're hitting that audience as well, you know, and that's a key part of, of, of our mission. Now, can I, I have to bring up, I can't interview you and not ask you about Downton Abbey. Um, <laughs> but was that the biggest hit? It, it's, it's not coming back. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, it wasn't my kind of show. I mean, my, my wife's here and she yeah. was. But, um, <laughs> did she like it? She yeah, she did. Yeah, I just yeah. wasn't my kind of, But <laughs> it, the, that, was that the biggest hit that you guys have ever had? It certainly was Numbers one of the, of, of the biggest dramas that we've had in a very long time. Yeah. And the significance of it is, you know, is, is important because I think for, you know, we have, a, we have a very large audience on Sunday nights that love a certain kind of, of drama that we do. And we're very proud of it. And Downton was just a success beyond everyone's dreams. And um, the thing that was great about it for us is that it brought in a new audience. It brought in people that hadn't been watching us as much, and it was a multi-generational 
show and so forth. But you know, I, I think I'm right with this. I think you know um, Ken Burns' original broadcast of the Civil War was larger than mm. Downton Abbey, mm. and um, and his broadcast right now of, um, of Vietnam actually, you know, some of the numbers have been comparable to um, um, you know particularly that first season of Downton Abbey. But it's um, but it was a great gift, and and we tried to take advantage of it while we had it, um, particularly. In reminding people around the uh, the broadcast that we have other things that right, that's, that's, that are right. similar. So and you would promote frontline. Exactly yeah. right, and and I also think that you know Downton Abbey was part of what has I think been a movement of really great television. You know, so um, I think it's not a coincidence that um, you know Netflix invested in The Crown. Interesting fact: Netflix spent more on the production of one series, The Crown. Than it's their entire content budget for PBS an entire year. Wow. So um, I, I yeah. say it because mm -hmm. we work with amazingly talented people. Mm -hmm. We really leverage every dollar that we that we make, both the money that's contributed by the federal government as well as the money that we raise. I think we're very scrappy. We punch well above our weight, mm -hmm. and we make we try to make really good decisions about where we invest. And, and as I said earlier, where we've made the deepest investment are programs like Rainey's because we don't see anyone else in that space and I think that's where we can make a real difference. Right. So in, in terms of just lasting legacy of that, oh, <laughs> okay. but in terms of lasting legacy, do you think it helped you in terms of relevance on the Hill, in terms of, you yeah. know? I, I think it was, a, I think anything that, that, you know, shines a bright light in a positive way is a, is a good thing. Um, you know, there was a little bit of, um, there was a lot of concern about, well, if you have a popular show like Downton Abbey, will people say, well, then you don't need, uh, you don't need federal mm -hmm. money or you don't need philanthropic money. And I think that was not the case. I think people understand that, you know, Downton Abbey was a wonderful series. It was a fairly limited series on a number of Sundays um, in January and February. Uh, but it was, uh, but it certainly reminded people of uh, of PBS and that our great days are not behind us. In fact, they're in front. Excellent. So now, are we going to questions now? Okay. Um, and do we have a microphone that's going to? Yeah, there's one there. Okay. And I think there's one there. So, so there's a microphone right there. If anyone has a question, they can add. <laughs> this is a ringer. <laughs> Bill Stokesbury from Austin, yeah. our station here. Hey, nice to see you. So on behalf of local stations, uh, thanks to both you guys, because uh, you've made a huge difference for all of us in our communities, which is my question. And that is, we have, you know, here in KLRU in Austin, we've got 21,000 members who supported us sometimes for decades because they believe in the programming that PBS presents and programs like Frontline, which probably the reason I'm in this business more than anything else. Mm, thank you. Um, but yet the future of stations often is characterized as locality and connection to the local community. If our primary donor base is supporting us because of Downton Abbey and Frontline and NewsHour, how do we most effectively connect in a way with our local community that gives us the sustainability um, irrespective of what happens to media trends and media consumption? How do we come enduring civic institutions rather than just a television station? So I, I would answer that in a couple ways. One is um, we are, in fact, a federated system. And so the way that we have come together is with the recognition that um, if we pull resources, we can create programs like Frontline. So it actually is the contributions from viewers like you, which we thank regularly on our air, coming from stations like Bill's in Austin or Becky's in Cookville that, um, that enable the work that, that Rainey does. So that's, uh, that's an important thing to remember, that it is, we are making a collective investment. So although it's national, it's really something that we all own, that we're all contributing towards. I think the second thing that's important to understand at the local station level is stations have an extraordinary opportunity to do a couple things. One is to, I mentioned producing you know, their, um, their own video and their own storytelling alongside of it, which is powerful. The other is driving off some of these national productions for their own convenings and, the, and, and conversation, because I think that's the one thing that people are really hungering to do. So Bill Station is fantastic. They bring to the world Austin City Limits, which is, I think, an extraordinary um, contribution of something that is very unique to Austin, uh, but is shared by the world. 
but also his station as Becky's is very interested in trying to figure out how you take some of these complicated issues of the day and bring people together. And I, people are hungering to do that. We're doing it remotely, we're doing it digitally, but there's something about getting people in a room, which is why this festival is important, which is why things like the Ideas Festival and all these kind of convenings, people want to come together and they want to have conversation. Our stations are very much in the center of that. And the third is the thing that a lot of people are not aware is we are heavily involved in classroom. We've created a service called Learning Media, which is a sort of a broadband pipe into classroom of content. And it's not full-length documentaries, although we do offer some of those. A lot of it are pieces of content in the format that teachers can use. A teacher really doesn't want an hour documentary or, or, uh, or God bless him, 18 hours from Ken Burns. But you know, the right three or five minutes as part of a lesson plan uh, you know, correlated against you know, grade level and, um, and, and subject matter is extraordinarily powerful. All education, like all politics, is local. And the ability for us to work directly with classrooms really does go directly through our stations and the partnerships and the relationships that they have. So I think those are just you know, a couple examples of why like a local media organization in community is important. And then I would say finally, we make decisions on the things that we produce and where we invest based on what stations tell us they want and need. And so as I, you know, I work alongside a lot of very smart people. We work with wonderful producers from Rainey. Rainey comes from our station in Boston. In fact, that's where our production comes from. So as Austin City Limits comes from Austin, right. um, Frontline comes from Boston. Mm -hmm. It rhymes, how beautifully. <laughs> um, and I think that that's also the power of public broadcasting is that it's all not centered in New York. Or it's all not centered in Washington or LA. It really comes from stations around the country and that's what makes us different and unique. I just want to take the opportunity to thank you both and all of PBS for what you uh, are to the American society. Ken Burns says uh, that the national parks are our greatest idea, and I think public broadcasting is one of our greatest treasures. And I am in greater awe of the writers of the Bill of Rights for understanding how important the freedom of the press is. And Donald Trump has brought that into my consciousness more than ever before. Please do not stop. Thank you, sir. Hi, my name's Justin. Um, I grew up here, so I grew up with KLRU and I moved up to North Texas for college, so I'm a big fan of KERA, as you can yeah. probably tell. <laughs> um, so with all the talk about budgeting and funding for the Corporation of Public Broadcasting and PBS and NPR always on the bullseye whenever certain factions come into power, my question is if we were to rally up more and more private citizens to fund PBS and, and the corporation and everything like that, would it be possible to have a fully independent public broadcasting system that wouldn't hinge its survival on federal funding? So it's a great question and, and one I wrestle with a lot because um, you know we do spend a lot of time really thinking about how to make our case and to make sure that citizens reach out. I, I, I think about it in a couple different ways. Um, one is, if we were gonna do an effort like that, we really would need to rally people around the country uh, because part of, of the, um, in support of something that will benefit communities that are not theirs, right? So, so much of the way that we've raised money around public broadcasting is people contribute to their local station to benefit their local community. And the, the government funding goes largely to support, um, you know, again, stations like Becky's in Cookville. She's serving part of Appalachia. And um, she can tell you stories that um, will break your heart about um, parts of her community where, you know, you travel through and you see old antennas, you know, on the side of trailers, and that's how they're getting her signal. And so we would really need to figure out a way that we could rally people around the country to support all stations in a way that um, would enable the great work. And look, I, I, I don't take the federal appropriation for granted. I think that, you know, look, I'm very, 
I think the, the, the part about our name that's extraordinarily important is public. And, you know, I think about us the way I think about public parks and public libraries and public space. And I think we could have a really interesting conversation about what that means. And, you know, as a taxpayer, I value the investment in public institutions that make this a greater country. And so, um, you know, we've never been overfunded. As a, as a system, I'm sure that surprises everyone in this room. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that, you know, we've tried to demonstrate over these years that we're a tremendously effective public-private partnership. Having said all of that, you know, I would take nothing off the table. If, there, if someone had some great idea of, of another way that we could fund this, um, I, I'm, I'm all ears too. But I think that in this near term, we really need to make sure that in parts of the country that I argue um, need public broadcasting more than any of our stations, that we need to make sure that that stays strong. Thank you very much. Hi, my name's Betsy. Um, so you guys talked about long form being more vogue now, which I, I agree, and I think especially the younger generation um, is seeing the importance of long, long form storytelling a lot. Um, but at the same time, there's this weird kind of contrast with newer media companies and clickbaity like mm -hmm. Facebook, these videos with the captions and it's, it's, it's striking, but I don't know. So I guess my question is if you think that there is like a form of clickbait long form that could emerge and maybe the dangers of that and for an institution like Frontline that's been doing it, they haven't changed, um, what is your role in that landscape and yeah, sort of where do you fit? That's a great, great existential question. And I'll answer it this way. I think that we do do short films now on Facebook and YouTube. And one of the most remarkable things that we've seen this year, this is the first time we're seeing this, is that we have been really careful and when we do have a short film on, on Facebook, for example, to say, hey, don't forget there's this whole other universe that you can explore on pbs.org. And so our, we call it a call to action. So at the end of every one of these short films, we're telling you where you can go and learn more. And I was telling Jim earlier, remarkably, now Facebook, and this is just really important to know because we've just learned this, that Facebook is our top referral to streaming our long-form films online, right? So we have a really healthy broadcast, people who watch us on television. And then we have this really big engine in social media where short-form is speaking to long-form. So for Frontline, for example, we don't think you could just do short-form work in the work that we do for investigative, but we think they can speak to each other. And I think it's important to be publishing where people actually are. So if people are on their smartphones and that's where they are, we're going to be there with quality content. But you don't see us do clickbaity work, and it's still working really well. 20, 30 million people will come to some of our videos because it's high quality and intelligent. So my thinking on young people is they also want really well-told stories, right? So if you do a well-told story, young people will come, and that's what we're seeing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for your question. Hi there. Uh, historically, public broadcasting has had this unfair advantage called pledge drive, where you could hold up the programming. Some, some call it an unfair advantage. Yes. <laughs> I work in public media online, and so we can't turn off the website yeah. to make you pay up. But as people are starting to get their content elsewhere, of course, yeah. and getting acclimated to free content, how do you adapt so that you can still get people to pony up and invest? when they're consuming it on all these channels you don't control? Yeah, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the very large question in our business right now is, is really how do we connect with people that are using our service? And uh, so we've, we've started uh, a whole series of things. One is, um, you know, we're obviously looking very carefully in the digital space to, to figure out how uh, we build relationships there and, and continue those relationships so we're not as reliant on the, on the pledge drive itself as a way to, to bring people in. Uh, the other is looking at our air and, and, and thinking about ways that um, we can make better use of, of that space. You know, if you're watching a really compelling documentary, uh, to be able as, as the capacity for um, um, uh, 
for you to be able to click from your remote and make a contribution right there, you know, as the technology is evolving, I think is very powerful. And, you know, the Apple one click and so forth are all things that we're looking at. I think the, the biggest project that we've done in the last year, though, that, um, that is really, you know, thinking about the future is that if you're a member of your local station, uh, you can have a membership in something called Passport, which is a library of content uh, that is available to you uh, that is, a, a, we, we are first focused on free content available to everyone, but a much deeper library of older things. If you think about, you know, in the, in the, um, in the era before now, you would buy DVDs and you'd have them on your shelf. Well, you may not want to have your shelf um, littered with all of our DVDs, as wonderful as they are, and we still sell a lot. Um, <laughs> but you may want to have access to a deeper library and through that building a relationship. So we're, you know, so we're looking at all of these as, uh, as ways of, of, of building out connections to, uh, to viewers. I do think that um, the fact that we are supported by so many people um, who are members or supporters of local stations has been a really powerful part of who we are as public broadcasting in this country. I spend time with the other international broadcasters, and for a long time they kind of looked down on us. They didn't really understand this whole idea of, you know, we make people give contributions, you know, because the BBC and NHK and many others are are largely funded by taxes on sets and and um, no tote bags and no tote bags. And, they, and just this whole idea that we would actually ask people to give us money and that we would give them a tote bag back just seems so weird. It's now interesting because there are the, the conversations going on here about the role of, of, of federal funding is, are actually also now going on in, in, in around the world. And they're looking at us again as um, you know, this blend of some federal and maybe some philanthropic support is maybe not the worst idea. I think it is part of what has kept us as such a trusted institution because we have to be accountable to all the people that we serve. And the, and the, and the easiest thing in the world um, is to slip and make a mistake and have people question your um, credibility, which would be the end of public broadcasting. So I think we have to work that much harder because each and every year we have to convince people to pay for something they get for free. And I think that that actually has contributed as, um, as strange as, as this whole system may seem to those on the outside um, to the, the power and the importance of public media. People understand that they're part of the public that owns public broadcasting. We're not owned by board of directors that make the decisions about what we do. We're owned by the people in the communities that our stations serve. And, and that relationship is something that I think does transcend the pledge drive and everything else. And thinking about how we continue that conversation with the people that use our service is going to be, I think, really important. Excellent. And that is right on time. So uh, thanks, everybody, for the panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to the Texas Tribune, another fine nonprofit worthy of support. So thank thanks. You.